Marcast is made possible by Hayes Marketing and Digital, the recruiting experts in marketing and digital roles across Australia for a wide range of industries and job functions. A really interesting challenge for us along the way was this tension between brand and product. Welcome to Marcast, the Marketing Mag podcast series. I'm marketing editor Ben Ice, and I'm proud to introduce Dave Jackson's chat with Sarah Prescott, head brand and marketing strategist at Thank You. Today, Sarah introduces the brand and its story, Thank You's journey from purpose-led grassroots movement to household name in FMCG, demonstrates how social movements, customer love, and just a little bit of healthy naivety can deliver brand, marketing, and business success. Perhaps you're already aware of this story, or perhaps, like me, you have some vague awareness of a brand of water called Thank You, but hadn't really given it a moment further thought. So in preparation for today's chat, I took a closer look at the brands my family are using, and lo and behold, it turns out I've been washing my hands with Thank You soap for the past couple of years. So... Where has this brand come from? How did it get in my bathroom? And why does it have such an unusual and interesting name? With these answers and more, I'm so excited to introduce today's guest, Sarah Prescott, Head Brand and Marketing Strategist at Thank You. Sarah, g'day. Hey, Dave. How are you going? Let's start with the story of the organisation behind the brand, because it's quite a bit different from most FMCG companies, isn't it? Yeah, it it is a little bit different. And um, I I guess our story begins back in 2008, a group of uni students led by um, a young boy at the time called Daniel Flynn. He was 19 and he was studying a project management degree at uni and um, was doing a uni assignment and came across stats around the world water crisis and the fact that there were at that time 900 million people without access to safe water and he was really struck by these facts and and actually really taken aback and thought, what if I could use what I'm learning or what if I could use my career to to help people who are in need and and lack access to basic human rights. So he pulled together his group of friends at the time and they all decided to go all in to start this bottled water company and I guess the one challenge was they had no idea how to start a bottled water company. But after meeting, you know, different people who were keen to get on board, um, a bottling factory came on board, um, agreed to zero upfront costs. A distributor, one of the biggest distributors on the eastern seaboard, came on board as well and to support the idea. And from there, it launched. And the guys thought, you know, in six months' time, things are going to be awesome. We're going to be outselling the top, you know, the top competitors in in the category. And we're going to be a household name in Australia. And, you know, it's going to be six months. And it was probably three or four years of really tough, really a lot of setbacks, a lot of roadblocks. And the biggest challenge was that getting shelf space was nearly impossible. So, The response we would constantly get from retailers was, where's your awareness? Like, you don't have a marketing budget. How can we be expected to support this? All very valid things to say for retailers, right? And the reality was they were were pretty much correct. Like, we had a Facebook community of around 10,000 people. We didn't have a marketing budget. Like, we weren't, our co-founders weren't even being paid. We're a volunteer-run organization. They were working part-time jobs and finishing their uni degrees and then putting everything else into thank you. So 
I guess the challenge was how do we how do we do things different to get the retailer's attention? We've been trying to get into the, the bigger supermarkets for five years. Absolutely understand why they, you know, it wasn't um it wasn't a deal for them. But in 2011, we launched uh, our first campaign, which was our 7-Eleven campaign. So we identified that 7-Eleven were a huge player in convenience. Launched a campaign with our 10,000 Facebook followers. We said, hey, everyone, we're pitching to 7-Eleven in a couple of weeks' time. Would you get behind us? Would you post on their Facebook page? 7-Eleven, if you stocked thank you water, I'd buy it. And it was pretty amazing. Within a like, couple of days, there were hundreds of posts up on you know 7-Eleven's Facebook and we we had a really positive response from them, which was cool because it could have you know could have gone either way. Obviously, a little bit of a disruptive thing to do, but yeah. um, that ended up securing our first our first big deal, which was amazing, and that really set Thank You um, on a growth trajectory from there. Were you with the business, the organisation? Do I call it a business or an organisation? Oh, you can say either. Actually, we can so, cover that later. The, let's get the, to that. <laughs> so, were you were you with Thank You back then, or so I joined in 2012. So yeah. we had just launched into Seven Eleven the year before that. Um, I'd been following the journey quite a little bit um, previously to that, knowing a little bit about the brand, knowing them on social, and knowing the co-founders a little bit as yeah. well. So I came on board just after that, um, and then. The year after, so I joined and I'm like, I'm joining this this water business and obviously uh, at the time we were very small, like very small awareness. So that was interesting. A few people, I, I did get some mixed responses from people going, what, like why? Like why would you leave corporate career with, you know, to go to a, a water company no one's ever heard of? But when I caught up with Daniel and Justine, our co-founders, and they talked to me about the vision and everything, there was just something in me that was like, I have to go work for these guys. I, I just need to do it. Like it's just, it was a non-negotiable. But yeah, went went to work there in 2012. And then the I started and they sort of started to share with me these plans that I, they'd sort of said there were some big things in the pipeline, but then there were these big plans like rebranding thank you water to thank you, launching two new ranges, personal care range, food range, and a big campaign called Coles and Woolworths campaign, which is like 7-Eleven campaign on steroids. So that was about six months after I, seven months after I joined, we launched that. So these are ideas that the founders had had and and didn't have the necessary, the resource or or the time or the capability to an extent to execute on them. Their ideas, you've come on board because you've bought into the vision and and it's exciting and passionate. And then there's just these huge challenges in front of you. Yeah. It it was like really exciting and really nerve wracking all at the same time because it was like this massive, I guess a bit of a risk to go out with a big message on we're launching two new ranges. We haven't got any retailer support, but we're going to try and get Coles and Woolies on board. So it's kind of really going all out and there wasn't really a plan B. So it was fun. It strikes me this optimism and ambition and and, in, and to an extent this not knowing any other way, the fact that it was a young team and not necessarily a, a team that it, were experienced. We've probably got a lot of FMCG marketers listening to us that have come up through more traditional ranks. And perhaps with that advice, they would say, well, you're, you're crazy. It's impossible. It can't be done. So, and so they wouldn't do it. And yet this team has just had this optimism and energy behind it and not knowing any better. They're just, as you say, they're all in. Yeah. And I think we've kind of called it in the past naivety, yeah. but naivety I think has been a real strength in some ways because it has almost allowed us to make those risks and take those risks that I guess all knowledge would tell you, like, don't do it, you know, yeah. and at the same time, I think there's also a lot of great lessons we've learned 
along the way too, like I, which I think with naivety comes great strength, but also learning lessons which have you know helped us create new strengths as yeah. well in the business and pivot and work out how we do things differently too. Yeah, and a great case study for that, you know, none of those failures, none of those learnings, the things you've got wrong have destroyed you, have made you stronger and helped grow. And Yeah, exactly. So it was um, interesting though, like I'm just kind of going back to the Coles and Woolworths campaign story because yeah. we wanted to launch this personal care range and Justin, our co-founder, just had this real vision for it. And we all really bought into this idea that a premium hand wash had a had a spot in on, on grocery. And when we so with, with the Cosmos campaign, you know, after two weeks of the campaign running and there was hundreds of posts that appeared on Cosmos Facebook page and in a few days and videos, like people were posting videos themselves, like dancing and there was like people rapping and making up songs and all in support of our products going on shelf there. And we wanted to meet with the retailers and the, the range they weren't sure about was personal care. And it was, we're not, we're just not sure if it's going to work. We don't know if there's a place for it. And we kind of said, well, we, we think there is. We've done our research that would say there is. And our research was that we all believed it would work and our friends believed it would work. Um, it was a little bit cheeky, but what was amazing was they, so they ended up kind of backing that and going, cool, well, let's let's just give it a shot. And obviously there are hurdle rates you got to hit with products. So time would tell, right? And what's amazing is that today our personal care business is, yeah, is incredibly strong and um, we, we currently hold the number one and two position in premium hand wash in the category, which is, yeah, which is amazing. It sort of, I guess we kind of help really carve out that category as well. It's now got a lot more plays in it, but I think that's been a, that's been a real example of, I guess, a risk and I guess an element of gut feel that we followed and that Sometimes I think you have to do that in marketing and business is follow that gut feel, obviously combine it with a, a, a really good dose of data and making sure you have all the information, all the facts. But I think sometimes a really informed risk can really pay off. And it's what we've sort of found over the years too. So There's so many interesting things just in that couple of minutes conversation and we'll try and cover some of them. I would like to continue to explore sort of the daunting nature of this ambition that the business had because mm. we've all anyone who's been involved in marketing we, we hear that you know it costs millions you know to buy one percent market share it's you know some ridiculous percentage of of new products fail that mm. you just almost wouldn't give it a go and in fact when you look at a lot of the shelves over 20 or 30 years in in these markets there hasn't been a lot of new product and a lot of new brands and a lot of success has there so on the one hand the market demonstrates it is really tough and it's almost impossible to break through on the other hand thank you with with a lot of passion sure but not with a lot of resource or a lot of experience or science behind it has somehow done it not in just one category but in a couple Clearly it's possible, clearly it's not so easy or a lot of other people would be doing it. Is it that simple? Did you just have the right balance of passion and social media savvy and and some creative ideas and it serendipity just kicked in and, and all those things worked? Yeah, I think different categories have different challenges and I think as you alluded to, you have got your more mature categories as well, which, you know, are a lot harder to, um, yeah, to win in for a whole lot of different reasons. And our success in personal care that I described before, I think the recipe for that upon hindsight is I think what we did was we found a niche within the category that could become mass, which is sort of essentially what we did. There was, I guess, a gap there in the category that we identified 
and a need, a consumer need. You know, we were seeing our friends were caring so much more about the aesthetic of their homes and the type of products that they put in their bathroom for their guests to use. There was a real trend there. Other categories, I think we've really, you know, we've given it a red hot go and we've we've learnt and from, I guess, trial and error. And one of those categories is our food category. So I mentioned before we launched personal care and food at the same time. Food was really interesting for us because I think we realised how tough a category it was. We, we knew it would be tough at the outset, but it was a very tough category to operate in. And I think there are a lot of different competitors kind of owning the space. And also for us, we realised pretty soon, pretty quickly that we needed to ensure we could focus on the right areas. And we were very stretched across areas, you know, and I think personal care would come up with, we'd seen the niche that was there with, with food, we'd probably come out with a product that wasn't really fulfilling, I guess, a new customer need. So it was just taking a lot more work for us to make that work than it was personal care. So we we just realised that over time we're investing a, a lot of effort into certain categories, whereas our personal care category with minimal focus was sort of growing on its own. So we actually exited our food category year before last. I'm getting, I'm losing track of the years. So it was 2017. Um, exit our food category. And that was not because, it wasn't because it wasn't working, like it was delivering enough for it to be sustainable for us, but it was more we knew that it was going to take a lot more work to make it work long-term. And we knew that it wasn't where our best return was. So for us, it was like, let's just trim back, let's refocus and um, yeah, focus on the areas that we kind of feel are are really winning for us. Um, We might talk a little later about category management and perhaps other categories that you have and haven't looked at or might and mightn't look at. Mm. I I also was struck in your introduction about the use of social media, the Facebook campaigns, both first to get into 7-Eleven and then scaled them up for the supermarket chains. There was clearly a lot of passion and energy within the small community that was aware of the brand, right? It's I don't imagine I could do the same if I just had a nice idea for a product and that I could just quickly assemble a group of people who were willing to write to 7-Eleven or post to 7-Eleven that they were going to come in to buy this product that didn't yet exist. There's There was something special about what you were doing and the, and the story that you were telling and the brand that you were building that meant that that was quite unique to what you were doing. Yeah. And we've always, we have found that along the way that there does seem to be a lot of passion for the brand and for what we do. And I think people, um, and probably, you know, I think people of all walks of life, but especially millennials as well, there is this real drive to make a difference. And also consumers, you know, as we know, are a lot more aware of what they're buying. And So I think we kind of came into the market at a really interesting time. Social enterprise wasn't actually a thing when we started. We didn't even know what one was. When we launched, we were, you know, tossing up, do we, do we become a charity or are we a business? Like how does it work? We ended up going down the business route, but the difference being that 100% of our profits were committed to our projects. So we just felt like there were so many charities already there who were doing development. What if we could partner with them versus trying to be another one, you know? So, and I think there's definitely something I think around the cause and the fact that we do give a hundred percent of our profits. And, and as well as that, I think we have really, I guess, invested in building what we call this, you know, this movement. And 
in terms of like the people that have been with us in the journey from the beginning, like we call them our ambassadors. So they, um, they're the first to know about any big news, any big campaign. And we usually ask things of them, you know, during campaigns. Like, for example, we did a, a big nappy campaign last year where we actually asked all of our ambassadors to go and put stickers on our boxes for us in store because we just ran out of time a little bit. We So let me get this right. These are customers. These aren't staff or they're not. Mm. They're, they're customers that have been customers of yours for a long time. But you've got them out putting stickers on products in stores doing well yeah i mean and we and we just ask like we put and it they, out there and they say yes yeah i think we had about 200 people commit to helping us put stickers on boxes and like we love what we do it's great but i think there is this real buy in from the community it's really humbling like we've been really humbled over the years seeing the people that will get on board our campaigns like another example was we launched a campaign called chapter 1 a couple of years ago um, you may may not have heard of it, but it was a book that we launched. The book was a story of thank you. 100% of the profits of the book helped to fund the future of thank you. So there was like some funding milestones. The first was our launch of our baby range. The second was our launch into New Zealand. And uh, we sold about, I think we sold nearly 50,000 copies in the first month and we raised one6 so 1.4 million in the first month. But we said until our, we hit the milestones, our co-founder Daniel's going to be packing books in a warehouse and you're welcome to come pack books with him if you'd like to come. So we had this warehouse in Essendon Fields and it was like super hot. It was like February 2016. It was like three years ago actually, like around this time and super hot, super sweaty. But all these um, volunteers like came out from everywhere and it helped. We had like this accounting firm from Brisbane fly down to help pack books and it was just it was just nuts. And I have heard about this. It was those numbers of books you're talking about, that, that's, they're beyond bestseller numbers, right? Yeah, we, we did a fair bit of research on book numbers and the research wasn't that encouraging. It was like, you know, a bestseller is 5,000 copies, but that was, that's obviously through traditional channels and stuff. So we were like, well, we're selling it online. It's pay what, it's a pay what you want book as well. So you can pay whatever you like. We feel like we can get beyond that number. Yeah. Once again, a bit of a, a bit of a risk, but paid off. Outside the book publishing industry, sort of the, the naivety again works to your advantage. Anyone in form would say it's impossible, it won't work, it's too hard, you'll never get those numbers. You guys said, well, let's give it a go and let's approach it a little bit differently. And that energy and enthusiasm and clearly some smart work carried the day. Yeah, and I think, you know, even one thing that we found a little bit with our, we call them our breakthrough campaigns, which is like our big campaigns. We do campaigns all the time, but there's probably only certain ones that we call breakthrough campaigns, which is kind of more like moving into new categories or new markets or trying to get ranging or that kind of thing. What we've found is that momentum is really important. If people can see that we're not just saying we're going to do something, but we're doing something and we're showing wins along the way, and that kind of shows that there's momentum behind the campaign then they're more likely to back it. There has to be an element of credibility to what we're doing. Like, for example, with the book launch, we knew we had to get a brick-and-mortar retailer because that would show an element of credibility to what yeah. we were doing. And it was also like retailers like that just don't – they don't do pay what you want. We knew they had to do it at pay what you want and that would actually help build that credibility, not just with the public but also with media. And it, show, it, it would show that we kind of – we did have legs to the campaign – so I think momentum is a really important thing with these campaigns that we're always thinking about. How do we build momentum? How do we create momentum? What are the key things that we need to get in place to get the buy-in, you know? Yeah. 
there's the viral piece to the consumer audience I'm hearing, yeah. but I'm also hearing about momentum and evidence with, with the industry because it's yeah. not just you, it's yeah. not just the business, the brand and, and its customers, is it? You, mm. we're, whatever product we're selling, almost without exception, there's all these other players in the market. There's the, there's mm. the distributors or the retailers or the bricks and mortars or the, mm. the wholesalers or whoever, the, the manufacturers, mm. the producers, mm. the, the delivery people. As a business, we're relying upon mm. all these other third parties and, mm. and a lot of those challenges around it can't be done are not, mm-hmm. are not the business saying we can't do it and they're not the consumers saying we can't do it. It's all these people in the middle that we're relying upon to that success. And- that is 100% right. And even as you're talking, I'm reminded, you know, of that whole process because even having, though, that airport retailer on board, as we're talking to the caterer, amazing caterer who came on board for this, we did like a huge gala event to launch the book. That's a whole different thing that was huge. But we got... Every like everyone who got on board for that event was like, you know, a partner for the event. Obviously, we're paying costs for things, but incredible investment by a lot of people. But I think those people all wanted to know that what we were doing like had legs and and there was some other people backing it as well. So I think, you know, things like the the retailer in the airport helped with getting the caterer on board and like it's just a domino effect a little bit. So I think, yeah, I think that's what we found is, is is super helpful, super important along the way. Let's pivot a little bit. There's a lot of work has gone into this. Tell us a little bit about the team and the people that have been involved. Tell us about the role that you've had along those eight years, six, uh, what, seven, 12, seven, seven, nearly seven, seven years. years. Yeah, seven, not, your not seven years. <laughs> and, and you talked about it was, a, it was a tiny team to start with. Tell us a little bit about the, the marketing organisation and, and the people in it. Yeah, sure. So... We first started getting paid staff on board in around early to mid-2012. I came on board around mid to late 2012. And at that stage, there was six or seven of us. So there was our three co-founders at the time. And then there was um, like our other co-founders had moved on to start something else. Um, and then there was a creative designer, amazing guy called Wesley, who stayed with us for a lot of years. Incredible guy. Pete, who's our chief impact officer. I share an office with him. And we also have Kirk, had Kirk as well, who um, looked after sales. So that was kind of the the dream the team. team. Yeah. Um, we had this loft space in Collingwood that was like all floorboards. It was three levels. So you'd hear every single step. Like it was, yeah. But everyone, and everyone kind of did a bit of everything. So in my role, I'd be like writing copy for packaging and then I'd be like, doing media calls and then I'd be answering the door because someone was here with the delivery and and it was sort of a bit like that. You just got in and did it. Everyone got in and did it. And it's awesome to say it's still the, the culture today, which is great. We're now 55 staff and it's been an interesting journey of the past, I guess, seven years to see how much the team's changed. So obviously I came on board, it was like six of us. And then once we got into Coles and Woolies, obviously that was huge for us, the business. So we were able to invest into more staff. So um, we eventually build up the marketing team. So probably one of the biggest things we invested in early on was product development because really that was up until like 2012, that was like the co-founders doing it. So we had an amazing guy called Tim come on board to help with product development. So at this stage, the business is still a single product. It's the water, but with the clear vision to move into these new categories. And that's about... Yes. A definite plan to to do that, and that's why that. the business is ramping up and bringing on additional staff. And yeah, expertise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think, and over time, the marketing team, obviously, yeah, we we grew as we figured out what we needed, you know, and what I guess the gaps that we had. But I think a really interesting challenge for us along the way was this tension between brand and product. Yeah, so always a tension between building the brand, building the movement, 
which I would say a lot of us, we were more brand thinkers, I would say, you know, and that was kind of our thing was building this movement, building this brand, the comms and like that side, more like a brand marketing focus. But at the same time, over like, you know, few years, we'd gone from being a bottled water company, like water is quite a simple product. Like it's, it's water, right? From a, from a production perspective or from a, well, yeah, from, a from, from a distribution perspective? From, yeah. And, from and a, I guess from a product perspective, like it's, it's, it's water. I mean, right. you can't so there's go, not a lot there's not a lot like to, you can develop in it. There's yeah. a lot you can, can really go wrong. We're not buying on a whole suite of product attributes. Yeah, exactly. It's, and I think the main reason people tend to buy water is price really it's it's a very price driven category but all of a sudden we're in these categories that are very complex and all have different purchase drivers per category and you know, you have companies, you know, they're, they're personal care companies or they're food companies. They've got entire marketing teams yeah. dedicated to like ensuring that we are talking to the consumer in the right way and we have all the right, you know, all the right messaging and everything's working. Everything's like researched, everything's science, data backed. and Absolutely. And so here we are with all these categories going, okay, we need to get a bit of expertise here. We need to like get some expertise in product in and FMCG product marketing really to to really ensure we're winning. So that was a real I, I guess evolution for us over the years. Um, a couple of years ago we got on board an amazing head of product marketing who's now head of marketing for our Oz ANZ business, Rebecca. She is an absolute gun. So incredible FMCG experience. And she really brought a level of expertise to the team in terms of being able to drive those categories. That for us is a real learning over time. But I think for us, it's always a real balance with how do we, you know, operate like an FMCG company? How do we ensure that we understand all the nuances of the category and we're talking to customers the way that they want to be talked to in store, yet how do we do it in a way that's thank you, in a way that's a little bit unconventional, right? Yeah. Yet at the same time, how do we also build this brand and I guess not just build a brand but nurture this movement that we've kind of created, which I guess is always a little bit of attention, not attention point in terms of, you know, within the team as such, but more as, I guess, leaders of the business were always going, even allocating resource and that kind of thing. How do you, because you can't quantify really what you're doing at a brand level as, as a long-term play, right? But yep. obviously we need to be, we need to make, make sure that we're hitting those baseline sales rates and that everything from we're doing from a product marketing perspective is getting that quick ROI. So I think that's been a challenge for us in terms of how we how we do both of those things and do them really well. Yeah, I can imagine the dilemma. It's kind of possible to be one or the other, but to be both is incredibly difficult, both from an investment perspective, but from a cultural perspective as well. You've got this core team that came together with a vision and with a lot of intuition, and then you're deliberately bringing in experienced, somewhat scientific-based marketers for those attributes, and yet you don't want to give up what's made you special. Otherwise, you're just going to be another FMCG brand on the shelf. And you're still relatively, you're still, a, you don't have those resources and, and you're still a very lean team compared to that. So you can't compete on those old rules. And I think you've really hit the nail on the head there because I think for us, 
Like I think disruption's a real interesting one, hey, because everyone talks about disruption and being disruptive and it's like yeah. a bit of a, you know, it's it's sort of a buzzword, um, has been for the last five years. But I think for us, it's like we have learned to be disruptive or unconventional in our approach, not just because we want the attention or we want to look like we're disruptive, but we've actually had to, to get cut through because if we just try and do things the way that everyone else does, we don't have the resource for that. So we have to try and do things in a way that gets consumers' attention in a different way and therefore helps us cut through all the noise. So even as we talk about, you know, doing a product campaign for body wash or, you know, just picking an example, but we'll be like, well, how do we, what's the, what's the disruptive element? Because we need to make sure we get some cut through with, you know, media or social or how to, like, what's the unconventional element? We call it the thank you effect. How yep. do we... How do we make the thank you effect? And the thank you effect is our brand values. Essentially, we've got four brand values. Um, if all of those, we feel like all those are ticked off in a campaign, we feel like it's going to deliver what we need. Does that get yeah. harder or does it get easier? Clearly, with the DNA of the organisation has this ability to be innovative and disruptive and come up with breakthrough ideas and the business has grown and been successful based off these innovative ideas. So it's there, but is there, a pr- is there then a pressure to continually be innovative and reinventing and rethinking? Because you can't go back to what worked five years ago. So is there an unlimited pool of ideas out there that you guys are smart enough to draw on and, and tap into to continue to grow? Or is it is it like so, so many music bands, you know, the first mm. album's a cracker, the second one's okay, or the troublesome one, and then kind of it heads off into mediocrity and ever, mm. the market move on and buy the next new artist because that one's sort of old and their innovation, their, what made them fresh is not so fresh anymore. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think something that we, like we used to say back in the day, thank you, like don't do things the way they've always been done before. We now say don't do things the way we've always done them before, right? Because you can very easily start to get into this pattern of, well, this is how it should look because we've done it before and it's worked. Like so, you know, we've we've got to replicate exactly that. But I think we've sort of seen over the past couple of years different activities were done from a marketing perspective. It's just sometimes it's not doing a big, a really big disruptive thing, but it's just doing something a little bit differently. And it's not, doesn't have to be a huge, big viral thing. Like I think we like the idea of something going viral. It doesn't have to be. It just has to be something that's different, something that's a bit interesting that's, you know, that just sort of sets you apart a little bit from what everyone else is doing. But that's also, that it also depends on the activity. Like there are some... Like some things we'll do, you know, sometimes we'll pick up battles too because it's like well, we, might, we might be working on a massive campaign in two, three months' time so we're not going to be doing like a crazy full-on disruptive campaign with a – we've got to do, a, you know, a push for our baby care range. Like it might be a little bit more low-key. So I think yeah. it's just – I think to d- try and disrupt at a crazy level for everything is just so exhausting, the thought of it, you know. Yeah. And also you, you kind of don't want to be that – those people that are just always doing stuff that's really shouty, you kind of want to like save it for the the good things, if yep. that makes sense yep. too. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So I think, yeah, in answer to your question, I think, yeah, it's really just picking picking your battles, being strategic about it. But I think we do we do really encourage our team internally to think in a way that's different and bring ideas and be unconventional as well. 
Are you recruiting for that? Is that does it does that influence the people that you're bringing on board? Uh, obviously, uh, to an extent, you are at least to some extent. You know, there's got to be a connection and an alignment with the brand values. But at another level, you're actually specifically looking and testing and targeting for unusual creativity, or you're looking for cross-transferable skills more than some of the traditional roles. If you're recruiting into a marketing role, you look, look less about functional marketing expertise and more about that something that's a little bit different? We definitely recruit people based on skill. Like that has to be what we do at, at this point in where we're at as a business. Like we know that we need to make sure people have the skills to do the job. So that's absolutely tick box one. Yeah, Not right. that great. Obviously, then there's like a cultural value alignment and that kind of, which I think any organisation has as part of their checklist, right, yep. for recruitment. Yep. Um, for us, that that is, you know, that that is a big thing. It's not like we have must be disruptive as one of our right. values, but yep. I think it's more, and because I, I think as well, different personalities are also going to be very, you know, approach things like innovation very differently. And I think you need, you really need what we've learned over time is having that balance of people is really important. So we've got really risk-taking people. We've got really more cautious people. One of those is our CFO, which is a really good thing, right? Um, so I think like, although she does actually understand risk, she's, she's awesome. She's, she's got a great balance. But, no, I, yeah, um, I, know, I know exactly what you mean. She's yeah. good, at, ra- she's good yeah. at reining things in and going, yeah. cool, awesome idea. Let's just see how we can make that happen in a way that's going to work. Yeah. So I think it's definitely important that we have a mix of people. And yeah, we understand that it kind of takes all different people to kind of make this thing work. But I think ultimately, like we love people coming on board who have that real pioneering mindset and have the real, I guess, passion for what we do as well. An office full of all these out there creative ideas people isn't what you need to deliver. Yeah. 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 I think like it would be a super interesting organization, right? If that that was the, it'd be full on. Like I don't, I'm not sure. And I think even our co-founders would say we wouldn't have got to where we are now if we didn't have a real balance of people, you know, we didn't have the more risk averse and the risk takers and that really nice blend of that you know, that rigorous debate around things, you know, we wouldn't be where we are now. So, yeah. We've talked a lot about customer in the early days and those and the advocates and the ambassadors. Yeah. I wonder as you grow whether all your customers, I don't imagine all your customers necessarily have that same amount of passion. You're a a significant sized brand and organisation now with significant number of sales. So I imagine you're one, your customer base has changed demographically, probably mm. changed in terms of how engaged they are with the brand. Is that mm. true? And I think you're so right. As much as we would love every person who picks up our hand wash to be like, this is the most you know, amazing thing. I feel so invested in the brand. The reality is like we... We don't expect that everyone, you know, is going to have that response. Also, like you may not realise what we do and who we are until you've bought our hand wash a few times or like, I mean, hopefully we do a better job than that and you do. But I think the people I've been talking about thus far in the interview, right? So we probably would classify them as our movement builders. So we kind of break up our target audience into our product buyers and our movement builders. So our movement builders are like more of our brand advocates. They're the people that are on our ambassador database, the people that will go sticker boxes. And, um, and But we don't necessarily believe those are the people always buying our products every week. That We hope they are. They're just really passionate about the brand. They will probably help spread the word and we, they're a great asset to us in terms of the support for the brand, spreading the word. But we do approach our product buyers like the consumer, we call it the consumer, yep. in a very, I guess, a, a different way that we don't expect. We're not making any assumptions about 
what they know about thank you. We would assume they don't know anything about us. That's yep. how we obviously you would approach marketing, right? Yep. So it's really about how do we win at Shelf? How do we make sure, like we're thinking about probably everything that other FMCG companies are thinking about. How do we make sure our packaging appeals? How, what are the, the, the cues for the category? What makes people buy? Are we ticking them? Are we not? Obviously we're doing research to every year to confirm whether or not we are or not. And when it comes to obviously our campaigns, we're making sure we're we're targeting the right people. So, yeah, I think it's it's a kind of interesting one because all the people I've been talking about so far, in terms of those really passionate supporters, it's um it's amazing. They definitely are there, and that's an incredible asset to us. But also, like we are targeting the general consumer who's never heard about Thank You, and there's a lot yeah. of people who haven't heard about us yet. So, yeah, I think that's it's a challenge for us as we keep growing that we're targeting the right people and creating that mass awareness as well. So. And so as you do continue to grow and gain more market share and become more of a mainstream brand, do you, do you imagine that that's about taking the purpose message to those new audiences or, or are there customers out there that will always buy you on other brand attributes other than the underlying original purpose of the brand? It's an interesting one, hey, because... What we find is a lot of us marketers, right, who come in to thank you, I'm talking about myself included, yeah. we come in and we're like, oh my gosh, like we need to do a massive impact campaign. That's what we need to do, you know? And we all think that way when we come in because we think, well, what an incredible point of difference. Like what an incredible key differentiator, you know, to talk about. Why wouldn't you? But then once you start to read all the research and you start to understand, you know, that 52% of people, you know, first heard about us on shelf and then... And and obviously start to understand how a lot of people will say that it's really important to them that brands have an impact or a social, you know, social link, social cause link. We know that that doesn't always equate to sales just from our, our research. So I think for us, it's really important that we use impact carefully in terms of how we communicate. It's always been a real tension point as well. Like just to go back to tension points yeah. in terms of messaging, like, you know, like how do we talk about, there's a lot of things to talk about per product. Like there's the product attributes for every category and then there's the impact and like both are very important. How do we balance the two and do it in a way that makes sense to the consumer and isn't confusing? So it really does depend on where we've kind of got to is that we, we use impact to really differentiate what we're about. Um, but we also, but we use it in a way that's very strategic and it might not be in every channel we're shouting impact. Ultimately, we're happy at the end of the day if people are buying a product and we'd love for them throughout that funnel to find out like about exactly what we stand for. But the key is getting it off the shelf, getting it into their home, which means, you know, for hand wash, for example, it's making sure we know that fragrance is important to people. We know that aesthetic is important. So we yeah. tick those things off and, and obviously different for other categories and stuff too. So, Yeah. It does strike me that there are kind of two distinctive elements about the brand and the time that you've been in the market. And one of them is that impact piece about the reinvestment, about the, you know, right back to day one and the, and the desire to improve water for so many people. And the other piece is about, and you touched upon it earlier, about a premium hand wash category that people were more aware of the brands they were putting in their bathroom, for example. And there are other premium hand wash brands that have come out along that journey that don't have the impact piece. And so as a, as a business, plenty of organisations have pursued that direction, haven't they? I think I, 
I think, do you know yeah. what I mean? You could just be a yeah. you could just be a niche, like, fresh new brand. Like why do we need? Why do we? Like, it's like why without complicate the, it? without the impact? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you could do that. Now yeah. it's been a strength yeah. of yours that mm. actually mm. this purpose was baked in on day one. Mm. And I think that for us is probably the difference. Maybe like we didn't start out to be a water company or start to be a personal care company and then just tack a cause on. Like, not that there's anything bad about that, to be honest. Like, I think yep. I think it's great that anyone's doing great things. And there's, you know, amazing brands out there who are giving percentage of their profits and that's really, really honourable, you know, and great and giving all of us consumers better choices. But I think ultimately with Thank You, if it wasn't for our cause, it wouldn't exist. It's not like our co-founders had a passion to start a water company, you know. It was the passion was really for the cause. And we obviously have grown so much passion for our products over time and um like our team is incredibly passionate about product like you, you should see them like they just get really into it it's like what's the fragrance like as we're doing a new you know creating a new product it's like we have like you know all the testing out and everyone has to rate the fragrance and there's a lot of heated discussion around which fragrance is better and you know it's it's great everyone takes ownership but i think ultimately we we exist for what we do and I think what's really special about the team is that, crazily enough, everyone does carry that passion for our cause and what we do. And we have these um, quarterly, we call them IIMET meetings. It stands for Internal Impact Meeting. And the guys kind of ripped off IIMET with it, clearly, with the (laughs) name. Um, It's probably even a copyright infringement just saying that. But yeah, so, um, and that meeting is like, so our Chief Impact Officer, Pete, will go through all the impact that we've made over the past quarter with our partners. So he'll talk through the villages, the projects, the human impact figures and share some of the stories of the people that have been affected. And, like, basically everyone leaves in tears. Like, it's just crazy. And it really brings you back to the why behind what we do. So it's just this crazy thing that we are day-to-day, most of the people in our business are running this FMCG machine, right? And it can be very all-consuming. Like, we're talking, like you know, it's tough. Like we're talking category managers, we're talking like your product marketers, talking our supply chain logistics team, like it's all full on like full on stuff. But I think you bring it back to the impact and it just goes, wow, we're doing all this. Yeah. For, for a great reason. So yeah, the passion is pretty amazing about the team. I think. Sarah, I have six questions in 60 seconds. I need them all answered. So we'll click the clock now favorite brand and why? I would say Nike. They've just done an incredible job building a brand over time, scaling it. Worst brand? Someone getting it really wrong. Somewhere you, somewhere you wouldn't want to be right now. Probably like probably like a Kodak. I didn't really evolve over time. It's very sad actually. Not worst brand, but just very sad, sad story. The biggest thing in marketing today. I think adaptability. I think being able to adapt quickly, learn quick, not be set in your ways is a massive challenge when there's just so much going on in the space. Gillette, the best men can be, good advertising or bad advertising? Well, they've done pretty well for themselves, so I'm going to say I'm going to say it's worked. Marketing in just a few words. Marketing is a conversation. Thanks to Sarah Prescott for giving up her time to appear on MarCast. In part two of the discussion, Sarah and Dave will dive deeper into the marketing issues faced at Thank You, like balancing business success with purpose and future opportunities. 
and how the brand balances the analytical and the creative. Thanks for listening to Marcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and tell your friends. The next episode's out soon. Check out marketingmag.com.au in the meantime to stay up to date. Talk to you next time. Marcast is made possible by Hayes Marketing and Digital, the recruiting experts in marketing and digital roles across Australia for a wide range of industries and job functions. For the latest insights on what it takes to be a marketing director, download the Hayes Report, DNA of a Marketing Director, at hayes.com.au.